All right, well, um, it's hard to make it through the checkout line of Publix um, without seeing magazine headlines shouting something about Kate Middleton, right? the Duchess of Cambridge, um, about whether she's pregnant or not pregnant, or fighting with the Queen, or about her new lifestyle at Palace. And uh, whilst I'm grateful to OK Magazine, for keeping me in touch with my royal family back home. <laughs> At the same time, I'm pretty amazed uh, by how much interest Kate still generates on this side of the pond. She can still sell uh, magazines with headlines about her. And I su suspect that the part of her story that still fascinates people here and, let's be honest, in England, um, is that she started life as an ordinary middle-class girl just like so many that we meet every day. But then, ordinary Kate Middleton was chosen out of a multitude of young women by a handsome prince, and she was whisked away to a glittering palace and became the Duchess of Cambridge, um, married to the second heir to the British throne and mother of the third and fourth and fifth and however many other heirs to the British state. It's like something out of a fairy tale. And so I think when we follow Kate's story with fascination, it's because we want a window into what that's like. What it's like to live a kind of real life fairy tale. Now I think something a little bit similar happened to Mary, the mother of Jesus, because she too was chosen out of thousands of young women to bear the Son of God in her womb and to raise him as her own son. And when we think about what an amazing privilege that was, we long to know, Mary, what was that like? What was that like to live that reality? And really the Bible gives us only one glimpse into what that was like. One intimate window into Mary's experience of carrying the Son of God in her womb. And it's here in Luke chapter 1, the song that she sings to her cousin Elizabeth, the song that's come to be known as the Magnificat. And I have to say that I'm extremely grateful to Luke for writing his gospel after many other gospels were around because he interviewed Mary and he included the Magnificat. Just, I, I marvel that if Luke hadn't sat down to write, we would never know this song. The Magnificat comes from the Latin for its first word, where Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord. And it's a song that Mary sang after she found out that God was going to take on human flesh through her. That God was going to make himself incarnate in her own body. So we're going to look at the Magnificat this morning, and I have two questions as we think about it. First, what did the incarnation of God mean to Mary? And second, what does it say about Mary that she sang this song? So first, what did the incarnation mean to Mary? And the answer, of course, is a whole lot of Old Testament stuff. So really, when you dig in to just how many threads of the Old Testament are being tugged in this one song, it's really kind of overwhelming. And to any first century Jew who knew the Hebrew Bible, hearing this song 
would have been like watching a fireworks show with bright little explosions of connection, popping and fizzing left and right. And so what I want to try to do this morning is to give you enough explanation of what's going on in this song to at least achieve a kind of slow motion fireworks show. Not as good as the real thing, but hopefully a little bit close. So for the first 10 minutes, get ready for just a tumble of references. But instead of like desperately trying to track everything, I encourage you to focus more on the symphony rather than the individual notes. Okay, here we go. So first, the Magnificat is a New Testament psalm. It's a song of worship to God. And like many of the psalms, it has those twin impulses of being both personal and theological. So it's about Mary's own heart, and it's about who God is. So the Magnificat begins with a pair of statements that say a similar thing in different ways. Mary sings, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Those are two different ways of saying essentially the same thing. And that's a technique of Hebrew poetry called parallelism. And we find it all over the Psalms. So for example, Psalm 19 begins, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. That's two different ways of saying the same thing. It's parallelism. And it's the same poetic style that Mary uses at the beginning of the Magnificat. Most of the phrases and the ideas that are in the Magnificat can also be found somewhere in the Psalms. And I'll just mention three of the key ones. So number one, Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And that idea of the soul worshipping is a common theme in the Psalms. So for example, Psalm 34, my soul makes its boast in the Lord, oh magnify the Lord with me. And David sings repeatedly, bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. Number two, Mary says in verse 53 that God has filled the hungry with good things. And today we sang in Psalm 107, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. And number three, the, Mary, the verb that Mary chooses for what happens to God's enemies is that they are scattered. In verse 51, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The Old Testament often talks about God's enemies being scattered like chaff of a winnowed corn. Chaff that's so light and flimsy that the wind can blow it away. And that's a big part of Psalm 1. Where the righteous are a tree with deep roots into the word of God, but the wicked are not so. But they are like chaff that the wind drives away. So the first thing to notice about the Magnificat is that it's a New Testament psalm with lots of things in common with the Old Testament psalms. Second, and connected with that, Mary proves that she's a true daughter of King David. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was of course biologically descended from King David. But she shows in the Magnificat that the apple hasn't fallen very far from the tree. Mary also shares David's heart which was, as the Old Testament says, a heart after God's own heart. We see that because she's responding to God in the words of a psalm. We see it in her personal humility when she says that she is of humble estate. 
We see it in her view of God, in how big God is in her eyes. Mighty, holy, and eternal. And we see it in her excitement about God's work in the world, past, present, and future. Particularly, the excitement in the way God fulfills his promises. Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. But I think there's another way that Mary particularly echoes King David. And that's in this idea that we've already read, that God knows the thoughts of our hearts. Verse 51, God has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. That's such a powerful little phrase, in the thoughts of their hearts. So remember when the prophet Samuel chose David to be Israel's second king? David at the time was a ruddy shepherd boy, the youngest child of Jesse, and he had seven muscular, strapping, impressive older brothers. But God said this to Samuel, if you remember, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the And I think those words became very important to David throughout his whole life. They became central to his understanding of God. Because, for example, the whole of Psalm 139 that David wrote is a meditation of the power of God to see deeply into our hearts. David says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. And then in 1 Chronicles 28, when David is handing over the throne to Solomon, this is what he wants to say to his son. Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. Do you see how important that idea is to David? That God sees our hearts. David had a profound sense of God seeing and knowing his heart. And that realization taught David to wonder and to worship and to fear the Lord. And that understanding is one that Mary, his daughter, shared. So second, Mary proves herself a true daughter of King David. Third, Mary knew that her child was the end of the world. And I mean that very literally. That through her child, God will fulfill all his best promises of final victory of bringing the whole world to an end. To use the technical term, this miraculous pregnancy has eschatological significance for Mary. That means it ushers in the end times. So we'll stay with verse 51 a moment longer. That little phrase, the thoughts of our hearts, has another layer of significance. Because that little phrase isn't used very often in the Old Testament, but when it is used, it's almost always a negative idea talking about wicked thoughts that rebel against God or foolish thoughts that deny the truth. So a key example comes from Genesis 6. Before God sends the flood that wipes out most of humanity, the beginning of Genesis 6 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Then again in Deuteronomy 8, Moses warns the people of Israel, beware 
lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. Or again in Psalm 14, it's the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. And in Psalm 10, the evildoer says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. So most of the time in the Old Testament, the thoughts of people's hearts are evil, plotting wickedness and hatching lies. And in the Magnificat, Mary says that it's time for God to scatter the proud in the thoughts of their hearts and to bring down the mighty from their thrones. And that means that it's time for Noah's flood. It's a potent description of global final judgment. That hint of final judgment is confirmed by all the great reverses, reversals that Mary hints at in verses 52 and 53. So if the mighty are brought down and the humble are exalted, if the hungry are filled and the rich are sent away empty, then the prophecies of Isaiah and his fellow prophets are coming true. The prophecies that Isaiah teaches us to expect at the end of the world when God restores all things. So Mary knew her child was the end of the world. Just two more. Fourth, Mary knew that she stood in a great tradition of miracle mothers. This morning we read Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2, right before we read the Magnificat. And I'm sure you noticed how similar those two songs are. Enough to say that Mary deliberately echoed Hannah's words as she praised God for her miracle baby. Now think about Hannah's miracle baby. Who was that baby? Samuel. He was the great prophet Samuel. The last judge of Israel, the kingmaker, who anointed both Saul and David, kings of Israel. And if you look closely at comparing the two songs, you see that Mary sees that her miracle baby is even more important than the great prophet Samuel. Because what Hannah prophesied, what Hannah prayed, was a prophecy about the future victory of God. Hannah said, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, future tense, and the Lord will judge the ends of the earth, future tense. But Mary declares that through her baby, it's already here. God has shown the strength of his arm. He has scattered the proud in their deceit. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, past tense. Mary's miraculous birth stands in the great tradition of miracle pregnancies in the Old Testament, like Sarah, who conceived Isaac, age 90, and Rebecca, who conceived Jacob and Esau after she was barren, and Rachel, who conceived Joseph and then later Benjamin after she prayed to God, and of course Hannah, who conceived Samuel. And Mary was fully aware of all that history. But Mary also knew that her baby was the greatest of all. That all of those other miracle babies, great as they were, had only been pointing ahead to her son. So forth, Mary knew that she stood in a great tradition of miracle mothers. And now finally, Mary knew that she was standing on the brink of the second exodus. Moses was another baby in the Old Testament who was something of a miracle baby. Not because he was miraculously conceived, but because he was miraculously protected at birth as he floated down the Nile into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter. 
Moses was a baby who was saved through water aboard a little ark sealed with pitch in a rescue that strongly recalled Noah's flood, which was the earth's first baptism. And Moses would grow up to lead the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt and accomplish a second baptism, the baptism of God's people through the waters of the Red Sea. And we've talked about all that before, but here's where we see this story retold in the Magnificat. First, that the singer is Mary, or in Hebrew, Miriam. And the first Miriam was the sister of Moses who led the women in joyful singing on the far, far shore of the Red Sea. Second, at the beginning of her song, Mary refers to God as her saviour. My spirit rejoices in God my saviour. We've said before that the Exodus was the great salvation event of the Old Testament. Thus, God saved Israel from the hand of the Egyptians. Third, Mary says that God has shown the strength of his arm. And in the Old Testament, when God uses his mighty right arm, it means that he's going to win a decisive and miraculous victory for his people. That's when God bears his mighty right arm. And the Exodus was the supreme example of the strength of God's arm. And fourth, Mary praises God and she says, holy is his name. It was through the Exodus that God established the holiness of his name in the eyes of his people. So he taught his name to Moses at the burning bush. And then he established the superiority of his name over all of the false Egyptian gods. And finally, in the crossing of the Red Sea, the people learned to fear God's holy name. So Mary knew that because of the baby in her womb, she was standing on the brink of the second exodus, the second great moment of salvation. All right, so that's what the incarnation meant to Mary. A whole lot of uh, Old Testament stuff, and I don't pretend that I got all of it. But I know that even that was like drinking from a fire hydrant. Um, so the bottom line is that when God was born as a human baby, it was a day that the whole Old Testament had been preparing for. And so it was an event that became more and more meaningful to people the better they knew the scriptures. So we're going to change gears now and ask the second question. And this is where we'll come down out of the clouds and bring all this home. What does it say about Mary that she sang this song? Within all the lofty theological things that Mary says in the Magnificat, we can't miss the honest genuine joy and excitement that she felt. Mary was happy. She was overjoyed. This miraculous pregnancy was really the most wonderful thing that could have happened to her, better than her wildest dreams. But when you think about her life, think about all the things that weren't going to change with this baby. She wasn't going to stop being poor or living humbly as a carpenter's wife. She wasn't going to be any more comfortable or any more powerful. She wouldn't command armies of servants or dress in fine clothes. And she wouldn't find honor or fame until perhaps in small measure at the end of her life. So in most respects, this turn in Mary's story was nothing like William, Mary, and Kate. It was nothing like a fairy tale. 
In terms of the things the world considers important, this baby made very little difference in Mary's life. And yet Mary was overjoyed to be chosen. And I think that shows Mary's heart. It shows that none of those worldly things were important to her, but what was really important was God's story. God's plans for his people, God's work in the world. That was the story that excited Mary. That made her heart beat faster. And so to be cast in a leading role in that story was wonder of wonders and miracle of miracles. Mary's heart was purely and undividedly devoted to God. Her deepest heart's desires were aligned with God's plans and purposes for the world. And so she wanted God's promises to unfold. She wanted it more than anything. That's what the Magnificat says about Mary. And Mary doesn't seem to think that she was really anything very special. She says that people will call her blessed not because of how great she was, but because of what God did in and through her. Because He had looked down on her with favor, with undeserved grace. And that's true, and that's a good and godly perspective. But at the same time, we can see that Mary really was something special. The Magnificat springs out of an unusually pure and undivided heart. We recognize that out of all the young women in Israel at the time, Mary deserved the honor of bearing the Son of God because of how much she it and because of how much she rejoiced to get would anyone else have rejoiced like this Mary was ready for Jesus to come in this season of Advent we've been talking about getting ready for Jesus to come back and we've been taking lessons on getting ready from the patriarchs and from the prophets and from John the Baptist and today our last lesson is from Mary Mary was ready for Jesus to come her heart was fully prepared. Mary was ready because of how much she wanted her Savior to come, because she wanted it more than anything. And that raises a heart-searching question for us. Do we want Jesus to come back today more than anything? And as I ask you that, some of you might know right away that the answer is yes, that you're hungry for God and you're eager to be rescued. And you wake up every morning with a heart that cries, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. If that's what you want more than anything, then I want to encourage you that such a heart is deeply pleasing to God. And that you're ready for Jesus to come back. However weak or frail or insignificant you feel, you're in the honorable company of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And soon, someday soon, her Magnificat, her son of, song of overflowing joy, will be your song. But I suspect that for most of us, honestly, the answer is no. That Jesus coming back today isn't the thing we want more than anything. At least, it isn't consistently, day after day. So when I was a teenager, I remember praying to Jesus, Jesus, you're welcome to come back, but please not until after you've found me a wife. and I think if our hearts are a little bit cool and a little bit divided it's for this reason that some other story has crept in and captivated our attention away from God's great story so maybe it's some grand story of humanity the story of how we cured cancer 
or how we colonised Mars, or how we accomplished world peace. If your work gives you a personal stake in a story like that, then maybe that's what's important to you. Or maybe it's some story that's closer to home. The story of how your small business rose from nothing to become a Fortune 500 company. The story of how your home or your neighborhood or your children's school was transformed from an ugly duckling into a swan by your tireless efforts. Or maybe it's some kind of relational story, a great love story of finally meeting the handsome prince and being whisked off to a glittering palace. Or the story of how your children grew up to find the kind of success you never dreamed of. There are lots of bright stories to choose from. And none of them are necessarily bad, but we need to realize that we all have a fairy tale that's captivated our hearts. And we should be clear about what it is. Because our own bright little fairy tale buried in our heart will compete for attention with the glorious true story mm. that God has invited us into. Mm. And it will make our hearts divided. Mm. We'll have a hard time loving God's word or obeying what it says or choosing to do the right thing. And we'll feel cool about the idea of Jesus coming back to rescue us. So if you think that might be true of you this morning, that there might be a rival story, a fairy tale in your heart that's captivating your attention, then here's what I suggest you do in the last week before Christmas. First, do the work of discovery. Give your fairy tale a name. What's the title? of the story that's really won your heart. Second, find a place alone where you can tell the story to Jesus, including all the details that you find the most captivating. And then third, tell Jesus that you're gonna leave that story behind there with him. He can keep it so that your heart no longer has to carry it and treasure it, so that your heart has room for his great story. Mary's heart was purely captivated by the great story of God, his cosmic rescue mission, the eternal love story that bridges the yawning canyon between human and divine. That was the only fairy tale that caught her attention on the magazines as she checked out Publix. And Mary's undivided heart made her useful to God even paving the way for her to take one of the leading roles in his great story. And her undivided heart was able to rejoice abundantly without reservation when Jesus came.